Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I'm just going to ask you, I'm just curious, I was, I was trying to get a quick glance. How many of you, uh, when that song's being played, you find yourself kind of even moving a little bit, or maybe just your foot tap to some beat, just, I'm curious who you are, okay, because you're my people, the rest of you guys, I don't know who you are, okay? <laughs> I mean, um, we've been entitling this The Rendering, we can wait though, um, <laughs> and this has been drawn from the political stew that Jesus walked in the middle of. At one point in time, uh, he's asked a question about taxes, and it was a trick question. Uh, Do we pay taxes or not, basically? And if he had said, yes, you do, then they would have said he's a tool of Rome, the, the slave masters. If he'd said no, then he would have been executed by the Romans for causing revolt. Instead, he asked for a coin, looks at it and says, who's picture basically or image on this and and what is the inscription and they say Caesar's then he says the classic statement render to Caesar then what is Caesar to God what is God's and so as we've been talking about the rendering we've talked about what we give to Caesar what we give we all pay taxes hopefully if you don't you're gonna have your own issues Um, we also have to look at what it is that we give to God and so we talked about flags and tables our opinions and loyalties time and treasure our resources and what God's bringing out is, and then bread and circuses, and that had to do with lordship. Today, I want to talk to you, just in the time we have, quickly, about zealots and Essenes. That's one that I know just trips right off of your tongue there, okay? Um, there were four primary political groups that formed up Judaism. Uh, the two, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were classic in the sense that they were also re- present in Rome under different names. They're present in our society. In fact, they've been present in every society that's ever existed, practically, in one form or another. The Pharisees were for the common man, or for the masses, okay? And that's where they drew their power, with the crowds. The Sadducees were the ruling elite. They had the wealth and the influence. And so you see these two groups throughout history, the wealthy and the elite, um, those who speak for the masses or gather power from them, whether it's cynical or whether it's truly what they feel. And those are the two parties that you see oftentimes throughout society. In Judaism, there were two other groupings. One were the Essenes. The Essenes are the ones who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. They um, retreated from Jewish society, from all society. Their thing was withdrawal. Uh, They were going to serve only God, and so they felt contaminated by anything else or possibly influenced, so they just did mic drop, we're out, and retreated to Qumran, a place that's near the Dead Sea, which is where we've uncovered some of their uh, um, hoardings of the scripture that validate some things today, which is kind of cool because you've got scriptures that were, were, are like, a thousand years older than any other manuscripts we have, and they still line up um, with what we have today. There was a fourth group that arose 50, 60, 70 years or so, about 100 years or so before Christ, and reached its zenith point 
um, about 30 years after his death and resurrection. And these were the zealots. The Sicarii were a subset. These were the daggermen we talked about um, that would literally hide daggers under their cloaks and knife people who um, were in favor of Rome. And so it's the original cloak and dagger. Um, Judas Iscariot was one of those. Simon the zealot, another apostle, was one of those. Uh, they were the extreme form, but they were still, the zealots as a whole were an extreme group. Their concept was to be zealous for God. And so this was their idea is that we're going to be zealous for God, we're going to follow God, um, only God. And um, as a result, eventually they gained primacy in the political structure of Israel to the degree that they, Essenes, they're out of it. The Pharisees and Sadducees were overcome by this group as they won popular opinion. So much so that in 66 AD, they formed a revolt. The whole countryside rises up with them, and Rome reacts just how you would expect Rome to react. They send massive military force to crush the rebellion. So they come into the country, and they, they start taking it apart. They come into Jerusalem, and they begin to lay a four-month siege on the city of Jerusalem. The zealots are in control. The Pharisees and Sadducees want to negotiate. When they do, the zealots actually kill their own people. The zealots can't even get along with each other. In the process of the, of the siege, they actually kill one another in the process of debating how they're supposed to fight the Romans. The zealots were so intense in making sure that they would not uh, serve the Romans and to serve only God that at one point in time, they destroyed the food stocks in Jerusalem. Now, if you're doing a siege, then you know the main reason why you're doing this is to cut off any supplies to a city and eventually to starve them out so you don't have to go through their fortifications. So it's the height of stupidity if you're under siege to destroy your own food stocks. But they did this, and we're not sure whether they did that to encourage a sense of desperation amongst the people, like there's no choice now, or if it was possibly to invoke God and saying, hey, we're totally desperate. We need you to come and rescue us now and to, to again, manipulate some response from God. Um, the final fortress to fall in the uh, Jewish revolt is Masada in 73 AD, and a handful of 963 zealots hold out there for two years, being completely surrounded by the troops of Rome. For two years, they, they hold out uh, because they had food stocks and everything else. So Jerusalem eventually falls. The zealots are fighting one another. Um, the end result is this. The zealot mindset ultimately led to the destruction of the Jewish state. The Essenes were out of it. The zealots were going to control it. There's a picture of Jerusalem before the uh, um, assault. Real quickly, if you throw that up. You can see the temple and the Fortress Antonio and the city walls out there, and this is what it would have looked like. This is the eastern side, and there's an eastern gate there. The other side is the western. Right now, the only thing that exists, because the, the Romans were so thorough, they tore apart everything. The only thing that exists, or if you see these retaining walls, is the retaining wall on the western wall. That wall right there that you see kind of lit up is called the western wall, sometimes referred to as the wailing wall. Um, and it's where Jews now will go to pray, Christians as well, because the last literal vestige of the temple or temple mount. Everything else was devastated. And if you see the, the beautiful building on top and some of these others, those are actually Islamic holy sites that now dominate where the temple once was. And so Jews can't even go there to pray. Uh, if you go there, you can't bring a Bible onto that place, and you're not supposed to pray on top of that. And so um, those who are their opponents now rule those areas. 
This is what the results of zealotry was. This is the stew that Jesus walked into the middle of um, with all that was happening. If you were to get hold of a Nazi army soldier in World War II, if you would have watched him put on his uniform, one of the last things he probably would have put in place was his buckling of his belt. And if you'd look closely at the buckle of that belt of that Nazi soldier, you would have seen an inscription that says, God with us. God with us. Zealots weren't the only ones that, that felt God would be with them and, and want to invoke that. And we see it invoked today within our politics and within our country as well, too. And the real question is not whether, you know, God is with us. The real question we should be asking is, are we with God? We get so caught up with whatever political process is taking place that whether we get fed up and sickened by it and, and, and like the Essenes do a mic drop and say, we're just out of it, I'm not voting, I'm not participating, I'm not doing anything else, or to the other extreme of zealotry where God's with us, that we cause destruction. Both of those lead to bad places. Jesus was not entangled with neither Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, or Essenes. Instead, he offers something different that its roots are found even in the Old Testament in Psalm 103 where it says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. There's something of God's rulership that all the cosmos, everything ultimately serves God, that he's the ruler of all. And so when he's challenged as he's standing before the authorities, whether it was Pilate or whether it was Herod, he says in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. He could have chosen any other phrases to use, as we said before, community, family. He chose kingdom. He chose to invoke that political aspect of loyalties, um, identity, all that was involved in it. And even here, he says, not my family or my community. He says, my kingdom, what I rule, my culture, it's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So as you're sitting here and saying, okay, what is that all about? Let me, let me back one statement. I'll make one final comment on the political realm. You can vote whoever you want to. I'm not going to tell you, certainly not from this place, who you should vote. You get me one-on-one, -on -one, I will tell you exactly who you should vote for and not. <laughs> At least my opinion on it, which could be wrong. But I don't think that matters near as much as this, whoever you vote for, you can find reasons for that. But whoever you choose, be willing to acknowledge their failures. Be willing to acknowledge where they're wrong and where those things do not line up with God or you cause damage to the name of Christ. So whoever you go for, be prepared to acknowledge when they're wrong. How do we know what is wrong and what is right? That's where the kingdom of God comes in and that God was, Christ was talking about. In John chapter 3, he talks further. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. Okay, he's going to talk about his immigration policy here. <laughs> no one can enter into the kingdom of God. And he could just stop there. No one's getting in. You're all going to hell. He says, unless, unless they're born in the United States. 
unless they are born a certain color, unless they are particular um, political persuasion or intellectual capacity. No, he says, unless they are born of water and the spirit. Okay, now I'm totally lost. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So what he's saying is, look at it. My policy is liberal. Anybody can come in. But you need to unlearn what you have learned. And you need to learn a different way. Not the way of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Not the way of the Zealots or the Essenes. But the way of the kingdom of God. You need to learn a, a different culture. You have to have a, a different understanding about how life and, and reality and all these things are supposed to work. This is a different operational prerogative. You must be born again. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, consequently, when that happens, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Members of his household. There's a completely different way of thinking and operating that takes place. And that's how we judge what is right and what is wrong. Not by American standards, not by Chinese standards, not by Russian standards. Not even by Canadian, as polite as they are. <laughs> but by the kingdom of God. And to do that, we have to unlearn certain things and learn other things. We were involved in um, Russia for about five years, a couple of years before the fall of communism and a couple of years afterwards. I was actually in Moscow a day after, the day or two after the uh, revolution had started. The tanks were in the streets, people had been killed, the barricades were up and we were seeing people tear down statues. It was an amazing time. Others were in as well, and it started to open up. That was in 91, the revolution. <clears throat> Things that started to open up in the 1990. R.C. Sproul, a theologian and a writer, was invited into Eastern Europe to do a series of lectures in three countries, in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and finally in Romania. And he says, as they were leaving Hungary, we were warned that the border guards in Romania were quite hostile to Americans and that we should be prepared to be hassled and possibly even arrested at the border. He said, sure enough. When our rickety train reached the border of Romania, two guards got on. They couldn't speak English, but they pointed to our passports. They pointed to our luggage. They wanted us to bring our bags down from the luggage rack and open them up. They were very brusque and very rude. And then suddenly, Sproul writes, their boss appeared, a burly officer who, broke, who, who spoke some broken English. He noticed that one of the women in our group had a paper bag in her lap, and there was something peeking out of it. And the officer said, what's this? What, what's in the bag? Then he opened the bag and pulled out a Bible, and Sproul says, I thought, uh-oh, now we're in trouble. The officer began leafing through the Bible, looking over the pages very rapidly. Then he stopped and looked at me, Sproul said. I was holding my American passport, and he said, you're no American. Then he looked at his wife, and he said, you know American. Then he said the same thing to others in our group. You're not American. You're not American. Then he smiled, and he said, I'm not Romanian. By now, Sproul writes, we were really confused. <laughs> but he pointed at the text that he turned to in the Bible and gave it to me and said, read what it says. I looked at it and said, quote, our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. The guard was a Christian. He turned to his subordinates. He said, let these people alone. They're okay. They're Christians. As you can imagine, Sproul said, I said, thank you, Lord. This man understood something about the kingdom of God that many of us here even don't understand and realize. 
Your response just now, was that just because the people got lifted up or because you, there was a suddenly another brother there in realization and a brother who realized that there's no Romanians, there's no Americans, there are believers in that setting. Right. Our citizenship is different. We give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Our taxes and our votes as well thought out as we can, but we're also to challenge those things that are wrong. And what standard do we use? Is it an American standard? Is it Russian? Is it Chinese? Or is it a kingdom of God standard? And how do we learn those things? This is what Jesus came to talk about. And so Matthew 13, he, he tries to get this across to the people of the time caught in the politics of their moment. And he says, there's this parable, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone is sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? And the perceptive owner says, an enemy did this. Servant asked him, do you want us to go and pull them out? No, because while you're pulling out the weeds at this tender age and time, you may uproot the tender wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Because at the harvest time, it would have become clear what was what in the moment of time. He says, this is the kingdom of God. And what it basically is saying in this process is that those of us who are followers of Christ are in the world. We're not of it, but we are in it. Let me rephrase that. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. We are side by side with non-believers who may not share the same beliefs, yet, maybe never. But God didn't come and say, hey, I've just given you a, a flamethrower, torch the field. He's saying we live side by side. There'll be a time of judgment. There'll be a time when those will be determined. But it's not going to be by you or by me. That's going to be by God. In the meantime, there are guidelines we can apply to have some understanding of what that is. And that's what he's trying to teach us. He goes on and talks about another parable. The kingdom of heaven, in verse 31, is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. What he's talking about in this situation is he's talking about a seed that, as it said, is the smallest one that can possibly be considered. And yet when it grows, it fills up the entire garden. It goes up to 10 feet high and expands out and the birds come and settle on it. He's saying that the kingdom of heaven is something that is expanding. It started as something small, just one man and 12 followers and really only 11 of those stayed tight. And out of that expanded and grew and it's continued to grow. It's in this place and continued to grow. Islam expanded by violence and by warfare. That's not a prejudice, that's an historical fact. Christianity, with the exception of aberrations that were non-biblical nor following after the way of Christ as the Crusades or other items expanded differently. Our founder sacrificed himself. Those who were his closest compatriots also sacrificed. They lived a different lifestyle even while they lived amongst the people they were with. 
It was small, but he expanded and filled the world. He says another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and, and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all the dough. Now, yeast is normally something that's viewed as a negative within Scripture. It's usually viewed as an evil that kind of floats through things, but in this case, it's viewed as a positive. It's a symbol of growth and influence and transformation. It's saying that this kingdom is going to expand in such a way quietly, subtly, like yeast introduced into dough. So instead of this flatbread, you're going to have this rising and this fullness and a different texture and flavor and all this to it. I love sourdough. I just, just, I love it. A really good sourdough is worth, well, I can't say killing for. That's not good. But it's worth going to San Francisco for at least. And it's all, uh, these are different strains that are, 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 are uh, have been kept around for sometimes uh, like 100 years or more or so. And when introduced, it transforms what would have been something flat and less palatable into the beauty of what is this sourdough. As we live side by side, there's something that's supposed to be transforming in us quietly that in turn is to transform the world that we're part of. It forms and shapes our identity, and it's not by location. Before the colonials imposed nationalistic boundaries upon Laos and Vietnam, the kings of Laos and Vietnam had reached an agreement early on on how they were going to tax the people who were in this border area that was kind of loose between these two countries. And this is what they came up with. They agreed that those who ate short grain rice, built their houses on stilts, decorated them with Indian-style serpents were considered Laotians. On the other hand, those who ate long grain rice, built their houses on the ground, and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons were considered Vietnamese. This is what's important. The exact location of a person's home was not what determined his or her nationality. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose cultural values he or she exhibited. It's the same way it's supposed to be with us. It's not a matter of physical location. It's a matter of do you exhibit, do I exhibit the cultural values of the kingdom of God wherever we're placed? And if we do, then you are like yeast. You're that thing that is quietly, quietly and gently but thoroughly transforming the world around you. The song says we've got to serve somebody. And that's true, whether it's sung by Jake or whether it's sung by Chris. The question I offer you today is not just who you serve, but how do you serve? Someone said recently that, that they'd be willing to kill for Christ. And a lot of people, zealots-wise, are willing to kill for Christ. The question is not whether we're willing to kill. Are we willing to die for him? Are we willing to sacrifice ourselves in that way? Our agenda, our needs. Are we willing to listen to a political opponent? Just listen. Is there a different culture, a different yeast that works through our lives? Or do we have limitations upon our love for Christ? Is it kind of like the old meatloaf song, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. <laughs> I won't do that. Don't even talk about my sexuality. Don't even discuss my wallet and my time and what I view and what I see. That's, I'll do anything for Christ, but I won't do that. That is not lordship. That is not following Christ. 
That is an American aberration. He goes on, Matthew chapter 13, and he says, The kingdom of heaven or of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. That sounds weird, except people didn't have banks in those days. They were bankers, but not banks. So they had a lot of money. They would bury it in their ground. We're still uncovering hordes of coins today from that system. But suppose somebody wanders into a field that's for sale in different fields and then happens to find a hoard of coins there. This guy's saying, I'm going to do everything I can to buy this field and then I can attain this treasure that's buried in that place because I've discovered something worth everything I have. He goes on further and says, the king of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. The kingdom is something that expands and fills. It's something like leaven that works through everything. It's something that is worth everything we have. And in this case, this guy had given his whole life to pursuing the perfect jewel, and he found it, the perfect jewel. And he's realizing it's worth everything I've got to acquire this, not just to fulfill my, my identity as a, as a jeweler, but realizing the value of this and what it's going to worth, be worth. And in the same way, he's saying that the kingdom of heaven is worth everything we have. If you look closely, it's worth everything. I'm going to tell you something in this service. I didn't tell first service. I didn't get around to it, and you guys look like you need this one, so I'm going to tell you this one. <laughs> Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down to the lake and caught all kinds of fish, and when it was full, the fishermen pulled it on the shore. They sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. There's nothing worse than bad fish, especially after a couple of days. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You really didn't want that scripture, I know. There's a point in time when there'll be judgment. There'll be a point in time when all these things will be examined. But in the meantime, we live in a world, not of this world, but in this world. If we're going to be followers of Christ, we need to unlearn a whole bunch of other stuff and learn a whole bunch of other things. We need to realize that, that God's working in us like a small seed that's going to grow up and eventually fill our entire lives, that we in turn are supposed to be a yeast living a different value system out as we learn these things that transforms the world around us instead of being transformed by the world around us. That we have an identity that goes beyond this planet and this time. We think if we only vote this way or support that policy, that some way that will bring in utopia, that will not bring in utopia. But Christ will. And there'll be a time and there'll be a place. As we begin to wrap this up, I want to share with you something from a second century philosopher because I know you love second century philosophers. I know you, you breathe and, and desire so much to hear from them. This is an old Greek guy named Celsus. Nothing to do with Celsius. He said this about Christians. And how confused he was by them. He says, those who summon people to the other mysteries, i.e. other religions, make this preliminary proclamation, quote, whosoever has pure hands and a wise tongue, come join with us. And again, others say, whosoever is pure from all defilement and whose soul knows nothing of evil and who has lived well and righteous, righteously, come and we will teach you the inner mysteries. Such are the preliminary exhortations, he said, of those who promise purification from sins. 
But let us hear what folk these Christians call. Quote, whosoever is a sinner, unquote, they say. Quote, whosoever is unwise, whosoever is a child, and in the word, whosoever is a wretch, the kingdom of God will receive him, these people say. Do you not say that a sinner is he who is dishonest, a thief, a burglar, a poisoner, a sacrilegious fellow, and a grave robber? What others would a robber invite and call? Why on earth this preference for sinners? Why does Christianity have a preference for sinners? Because the founder of our faith did and does. We are not to be Essenes. We're out. We're not to be zealots. Even for God. Because what begins for God so quickly twists to our own desires and our own manipulations. We are to be children who realize that we're children and that we need to unlearn and relearn we are sinners in need of salvation who understands that what our God asks and what this kingdom is requiring of us is to act justly to the degree we can through the filter of kingdom values. That we are to love mercy even when it's given to those who have harmed us. And probably most of all that we're to walk humbly, simply before our God. I'm no different than you. I've yelled at my kids. They've yelled back. I've had my moments of utter brilliance and beauty before God and my moments of utter stupidity. But I am a follower of Christ, broken as I am. And it's only by his grace I stand. I'm an American by birth, Czechoslovakian by ethnicity. Occasional intellectual. Brilliant teller of jokes. <laughs> but more and more I realize that I'm a child of God. And that there's things I'm unlearning and things I'm learning. And at the end, all those other things are going to burn away. And what is going to remain is whatever Christ gave his life for. And whatever has learned the ways of the kingdom. This morning, we're going to take a communion. And our communion is an open communion. You do not have to be a member of this church. You do need to be a follower of Christ. If you're not, then let it pass you by. You don't understand it. Let it go. No big deal. But if something has stirred in your heart and mind here today, that this is the kingdom you want to be part of. This is the identity you want to have. That of following Christ, that of, 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 of a member of the kingdom of God, then even now where you're at, you can make that commitment before Christ and say, I accept your act of salvation, your sacrifice on the cross to cleanse my sin. I confess I'm a sinner. And you can join our ranks.
and you can take hold of this today. The only thing we'd ask is everyone would hold the bread and the cup and we'll take it together. But that'll be your decision. If you're not ready for that, though, let it pass you by. But at least consider the words we've discussed here today. Father, we come before you. We are reminded in the midst of the turmoil that we're in that it was no different, in fact, if anything more intense in the time that you walked. And in the midst of all those swirling loyalties and allegiances and confusions and betrayals, you quietly but strongly pronounced that the kingdom of God was present, that it was expanding and filling the world. And you've invited us to be a part of that in our brokenness, in our sin, in our weakness, in our failings. So Lord, as we come to this table today, we celebrate your grace, your forgiveness. And we're reminded anew of not just who we serve, but are challenged hopefully this morning in how we serve. And that it would touch every aspect of our lives. Speak to us in the quietness of this moment, I pray, even more so by your Holy Spirit. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he sat with, started off as 12, got down to 11. Just a small gathering. Broke a piece of bread and he said, this is my body, broken for you. He began to draw their attention very sharply that his kingdom, his way of conquering hearts and minds was going to be very different than anyone else who had come before him. So Lord, this morning, as we take hold of this, which represents your broken body, we're just caught with an awareness that, that you intended something different than any other leader that came before you. And we thank you for your grace. Amen, shall we? Then he lifted up a cup and filled with wine in a way the friends would share in a gathering. He looked around the group and there were two of them that were zealots. One, a Sakari. He'd left the room, Judas. Still couldn't overcome his political ambitions. But Simon was there still. A zealot. On the other end of the political spectrum was Matthew, a tax collector, and others who would have served Rome. Ignorant fishermen, crude individuals. And it was to this group of non-elites that he lifted up this cup and said, this is my blood that's going to be shed for you. Don't ever forget this. This is the kingdom of God. Not swords and shields. Not daggers and violence. But sacrifice and service. And so, Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, as believers in China and Russia, throughout the African continent and Central America, around the world as believers on this day, would raise a cup in remembrance, we identify with them. And Lord, we thank you for it is only by your grace that we stand and we pray and ask that your kingdom would come on earth, even as it is in heaven.
In your name we pray. Amen. Shall we? Don't withdraw. Hide off in your little cave and be an Essene. Don't be a zealot and stamp, you know, God with us on your belt buckle. You never know where you're going to end up with that. Instead, function as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Seek to understand what that means and what those values are. Strive to apply those in your own life and use it as a filter by which you see the world around you. Render to Caesar whatever is Caesar's, but render to God what is his. And if you're a follower of his, that means your whole life and every hidden aspect of it. Father, I thank you for your grace by which we stand. I thank you that you brought a completely different way of how to live life. And Lord, we pray that this eventually would impact our whole world. In the meantime, we pray right now for our country. We pray for the leaders of this country. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are in countries who do not have the freedoms that we have here and that struggle, Lord God, even now, that you administer your grace to them and they would feel your presence in whatever circumstances they're in. Continue to guide us and shape us as your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.